Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. I'm David. Tyler. And it's been a few weeks. Mm-hmm. Usually when it's been a few weeks, we have a big list to get to. Yeah. I've, between being uh, quite busy um, and then being sick, yeah. I haven't watched so many movies. I know it's like, I was, t- I was telling you off mic, seems counterintuitive. Like, you think like, oh, yeah. you're sick. You got nothing else to do. Why not watch movies? I can't really focus on movies when I'm sick because I tend to take, if I'm sick, I take NyQuil at every chance so I can sleep away as much sure. of the sickness as possible, which means when I am awake, I'm groggy and I just want to watch like guys grocery games on food network or whatever, <laughs> because I, like if there's, if, if I can flip to channels and find like that, there's a marathon of a reality competition show, mm-hmm. you know, um, or even around like, you know, it used to be like uh pawn stars. I would watch like whenever there was one of those like basic cable marathons, yeah. I'm like, I am set and I would just watch it. Uh, guys, grocery games is a big one. Also, um, worst cooks in America. If we're sticking to the food network, uh, theme is one that I, I love to watch because now we're way off, off topic, but, um, do you, you don't watch any food network? I take it. I don't, we don't have the food network. Okay. <clears throat> um, there is a, a host on the Food Network named Ann Burrell. Okay. That when I first was, uh, when I first became aware of her, I couldn't stop complaining. Like, how is this person? This person has zero charisma. How is this person the host of a TV show? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> or multiple, you know, she's always like a guest judge or hosting different yeah. TV shows on the Food Network. And pretty quickly, because I watch a lot of Food Network, pretty quickly, Ann Burrell became my favorite person on the Food Network. Because she's, I, I don't mean this to sound pa- like patronizing, but she is kind of like, there's like a, she's like the kind of person, this is going to sound mean, but that like Tim and Eric might've highlighted on their show, uh, like someone who has all of the passion yeah, and all of the desire and their heart is in a good place and they really want to be an entertainer but they don't quite have that something that, that, that charisma that I'm yeah. talking about. Um, and I've come to find that, and that's, I, I, I've, I've come to find that maybe Ann Burrell does. It just took me, she's just an acquired taste. I think that's what it is. But, um, she is unlike anyone else who hosts any show on, on, on te- television, um, yeah, with, but, with her weird energy. Yeah. But that makes it sound bad. It makes it sound like you're, you I know. said she's an acquired taste, okay. I guess is what I'm saying. Fair enough. You know? Um, uh, so I think people should, I, I want to hear, I'm sure I assume everyone watches the food network all the time. Uh, uh, I don't know if that's true. I assume you're the outlier. Sure. Um, but I would love to hear people's opinions on, on Ann Burrell because I've gone from, uh, yeah, n- n- I've gone from not being a fan at all to her being my favorite person on food network in a way that I, I'm dancing around the idea but I know because I know what this sounds like. This sounds like I like her ironically. Mm. That's not what it is. I really, really do like her now. Okay. Because of her weird offbeat uh, energy. But um, I'm not sure that I could explain to other people, which I'm clearly not doing very well, uh, what her charms are. You're such anyway. a hipster, David. So, <laughs> see, I hate. There are so many things that you know, I, I was do saying that, that jokingly, like, right? I know, okay. but there are like. <clears throat> there was. Unfortunately, this place went out of business, but there was a convenience store on Franklin in Hollywood called Joe Mart. Um, and they had uh, like on their front window, 
follow us on Twitter at Joe Mart. Mm-hmm. And so my wife and I followed them on Twitter, of course. Yeah. And it was so delightfully charming and innocent and cornball. Like they'd just constantly be like, pick up some Red Bull before you hit the clubs tonight. Like it was always just so like, <laughs> oh yeah. It, it, but, but I, I always refrained from tell like retweeting them or telling people about it. Right. Because I was so afraid that people would, be would like make fun or think that I'm enjoying it. Ironically, I'm not, I love it. I love, I love that kind of stuff, but I, I'm afraid to share it with people because I don't trust other people. Right. Yes. Yes. Okay. Well, I think we've, uh, I think we've kicked things off pretty well. We've got movies to talk about. All right. Yeah. You go first. I'm going to, I'm going to take some, I'm going to take some drugs. Okay. Uh, so (laughs) can people hear my voice that I'm sick? Do you think? I think so. Probably you're, you're a bit stuffed up. I think that's coming through. Um, so, uh, and then I'm still getting over my illness. So I'm, I might cough from time to time, uh, during the episode, like, right now for example like that um for example so uh a lot of these are going to be rewatches uh because while i was sick i did rewatch some stuff and then that in my the film history class that i'm taking um so i rewatched for the first time in many years the best years of our lives oh cool um was this perhaps inspired by sarah rewatching it for the 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 website or well, that, that hasn't posted yet has it as of this uh, recording right no it was <laughs> it was a function of my film history class oh so it's a coincidence indeed for the listeners who don't know sarah brinks over at the website is going through our listener voted top 100 list from 100 to 1 doing uh, roughly two movies a week and writing little capsule yeah. uh, not even reviews just more like personal reflections on them and uh, best years of our life is, lives is coming up this weekend feel free to follow along with her and chime in um <clears throat> Yeah, uh, this film is astonishing in many ways. Mm-hmm. It is, you know, obviously people will talk about the characters and they'll talk about the acting and some pretty superb writing. And that's, and, and uh, it is that, that, it's that first and foremost. But Greg Toland is the cinematographer. Oh, that's right. And he used, he used some deep focus in a way that was much showier, obviously, in Citizen Kane. But mm-hmm. in this... Um, he just uses it to emphasize uh, character relationships. You know, uh, like you can see somebody in the background working on something and you see somebody in the foreground, both of them are in focus and they have a relationship to each other, but they're also doing things, uh, doing s- different things at that particular moment. So, uh, so it's a very good looking film. And, you know, so much of uh, these films that I, um, that I've seen uh, that I rewatch in this film history class, I'm always fascinated to know what the kids think of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the kids today, mm-hmm. um, by which I mean the, the kids that I, that I, uh, teach and, <coughs> and they really loved it and they were really, really responded to it. And, and it definitely surprised them, uh, because up until this point, I mean, they, they loved a lot of the movies that we had watched up until this point, but the, the tone of best years of our lives, is unlike a lot of other movies at the time. Uh, I feel like its sensibilities are actually very 1960s, but it has a 1940s quality to it. But it's still dealing with some of the darker issues uh, that veterans probably always deal with, but we're definitely dealing with coming out of World War II. Um, And that was 
a good war. That was mm-hmm. the war that, that we're all we're all fine with fighting. Right. Uh, and so the idea of these guys fighting a good war and then coming home, shouldn't you just be happy that you're that you fought for a good cause and now you're back? Well, they also saw some horrible things and experienced some horrible things and and that the kids seem to really respond to that and find it really effective. And Harold Russell, I gotta say so he plays the you know he he lost his hands uh and he plays this character who also who obviously lost his hands and you know he was given that special oscar for bravery and you know vulnerability <laughs> but he also won supporting actor and so it's odd that he had two oscars clearly the academy's like this guy's walking yeah. away with a statue no matter what and but the really fact- rubbing in that he has no hands giving him two oscars <laughs> that's you are a mean person <laughs> uh but you, know, you make a good point and so um he can take it. He earned two Oscars. Yeah, I think he's going to be all right. Although apparently uh, he fell on hard times later on in his, in his life and uh, so I believe sold one of his Oscars so he could get some dental work done. Oh, my. Um, very sad. Is- but but the thing is, he absolutely earns that Best Supporting Actor Oscar because this is a guy who's not a professional actor, mm-hmm. but he's able to tune in to his own personal experience and put that and replicate that on screen and it is a really great performance uh you know um it seems i'm not sure if i would say it seems professional it seems better than professional it just seems genuine um and to and the film is not necessarily built around him but it definitely seems to almost take its cues from his honesty um wonderful film if you haven't seen it check it out um I will, uh, real quick, um, this is an off mic. Did you say you had 10 now to go through? Yes. All right, then I'm going to add one too, and I'll add it right at the top here. Um, because I, uh, I did rewatch, uh, I did watch a movie while I was sick. I, re- uh, I rewatched La La Land. Oh, okay. Um, and, uh, because as people who listened, uh, to uh, the main episode a couple weeks ago, to our top 10, no, it was my, fa- it was my favorite movie of 2016. It remains such, um, but uh, I, I rewatched it with other things in mind, and I think I like it even more now. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you if you remember what I was saying about it, um, uh, you Tyler or you the listeners, I was focused more on its depiction of this love story mm-hmm. <clears throat> because I think a lot of people were focused on um, people, both people who like it and don't like it, are focused on the this depiction of you know. Uh, people trying to achieve their artistic dreams right. um, and that uh, certainly I wasn't blind to that the first time I watched it, but um, I uh, focused more on the love story. Uh, so I watched it again with that in mind and I was like, ah, this is, this movie's great at that too. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you why. And this is another piece of my argument that despite what you've heard, La La Land is actually a good Los Angeles movie. I think those of us like you and me, Tyler, who love Los Angeles, I think sometimes we spend so much time trying to deflect (coughs) from the stereotypes and trying to say, we spend so much time saying, no, Los Angeles isn't all people who have a screenplay or people who are, you know, uh, just working a side job until they get their big break. It isn't all that. Everyone isn't in the industry and that's true. And it's important to point out that this is a functioning city with a large, large working class and, and that it's, it's not just a bunch of, uh, Hollywood types, but we focus on that so much that I think sometimes we forget that that is a big part of what makes our city, uh, unique. Sure. Um, and I think there's something, 
uh, and I think this might be part of the backlash. I think there's a certain group of people, uh, especially our age who have trouble with a lack of irony. Okay. And so I think there's something incredibly earnest about La La Land in that it says these people that you, you know, that are the subject of every satire about Los Angeles, these, you know, these people who were, who, who were, uh, trying to get their big break that there's actually a lot of nobility in their striving because what they're trying to do with their lives is the thing that we, especially you and I and our listeners have all agreed is important. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yes. They're trying to be artists. And then, then the movie is trying to say that you can scoff at the fact that everyone at every Starbucks in Los Angeles has their laptop open is working on a screenplay or, you know, um, getting new headshots or, or, or whatever, but don't like, don't forget that the person serving you coffee or your Lyft driver or the person who's helping you move, you know, the moving company could someday be the person who gives you, who brings you to tears or gives you revelation or catharsis or changes your life. Like yeah. this is an important thing and there's a lot that you can make fun of, but these, these people are dedicating their lives to something uh, that the movie says, and that I agree is noble. Mm. And so uh, <laughs> I basically, I rewatched La La Land and I think I love it even more. It's now it's not my number one plus <laughs> if that's possible. <laughs> it works. I think that works. <laughs> uh, anyway, so that was my uh, rewatch and I wanted to get out more thoughts about La La Land. Do you have any thoughts about what I just said about La La Land? Or about Los Angeles? Uh, it's just, it's it's interesting that you bring this up because, and this could veer us off in another direction, is that... Oh, heavens for Fend. Uh, oh, nice. Um, I, uh, as, as I've said before, there aren't a lot of arguments that I will allow myself to get into on Facebook. But now that VidAngel's gone... Um, there is a there's a, a new argument that I am now not merely will I let myself get into it I am looking for it now <laughs> uh, and that is when my fellow it's it's a very specific argument which is good because I, I don't have to right it's, it's not consuming me when my uh, fellow conservatives feel that they should comment on Hollywood that's fine everybody can have an opinion on Hollywood everybody everybody can have an opinion on film that's fine but. When an actor or a director has an opinion uh, about politics or or whatever, and now you can say that actor is wrong, you can say they're dumb, that's fine. But they take this extra step, and then they will they will talk about why this actor's career isn't going well, or they'll oh, call them a yeah. hack or something like that. I think we've talked about this before. Probably, yeah. uh, it's likely, and so. Um, <coughs> So uh, somebody was talking about, like, uh, apparently there was this idea that, like, uh, Alec Baldwin was floating that he was going to write a satirical autobiography as Trump. Uh, and I th- and it's like, okay, well, that's... Uh, and people were making fun of that, and they just kept bashing Alec Baldwin and said... He was is he going to do it with him. SNL writers, or is he going to try to be funny all on his own? <laughs> Gosh, I hope. I hope it's the SNL writers, because while he can deliver a joke wonderfully, yeah. like, come on. Um, so... You know, everyone's saying like, oh, he's a loser. He's a has been blah, blah, blah. And so I chimed in and said like, I believe I start with damn it, people. 
<laughs> and I said, we make ourselves look ridiculous when we do this. We can disagree with him. We can say his, his, his opinions are stupid while still acknowledging that he's very good at what he does. And then I rattled off titles and said, uh-huh. like, you know, here's all the things where he, that he was great in. And one person actually, you know, engaged me on, on, on an intelligent level, which I liked. But then this other person, <coughs> excuse me, because um, what will eventually happen is then people, and this is what this person does, did, um, they will eventually downplay the role of artists in general. Mm. And just art in general, and, and so this person's like, "It's like ah, he's just a dancing monkey." And I said, uh, "And I said, I think your your definite your approach to art is both simplistic and idiotic." But I will go ahead, and I will speak in these terms. If he is in fact a dancing monkey, uh, then he is a very he's very good at dancing, and we are all acting as though he isn't. If he's a dancing monkey, then this is what he's good at, mm-hmm. and we are now lying uh, by saying he's not good at this thing. And that doesn't do us any favors at all. And, but it's that idea. So what you're talking about kind of got me thinking of that, this idea that like now it, it, this, in this case, it's politically motivated, but like the, the attitude of some that art is not vital. Now I recognize that they're not, that artists aren't paramedics. They're not doctors. They're not, you know, they're not literally saving lives. They're simply enriching lives so that when somebody is, uh, when somebody's life is saved, they actually have a reason to stay living, <laughs> right, uh, yeah. which yes, I recognize I'm being a little bit, uh, a little bit lofty, but, but I do think that like in the end, you know, I don't, I don't, uh, I'm not where Meryl Streep was in her golden globe speech with like, Oh, you know, without, without uh movies where there would just be football and mma like i'm not that far saying like oh we're so you know there are other things in this life yeah such as sports such as like i love i love meryl streep's speech at the golden globe so much that it really stuck in it was a what's the the word uh it stuck in my craw that that thing at the end because it was like now you're going back to making it an us versus them right thing and i think she was just doing it to it was a rhetorical thing so she could bring up mixed martial arts to use right. the word arts. I think that's all I think that's all she was doing, but I, I think so. it kind of undercut her argument yeah. because it's the flip side of uh, sports Gov- are great, by the way. It's the flip side of Governor Ritchie. Uh from uh, <laughs> sure, yeah. from West Wing. Yeah. So exactly. but the idea of, of yes, this is a, a noble pursuit and one that people val people actually I think even the people that would say arts aren't important, I think they are not even consciously aware just how much art is in our lives and how vital it is to our lives. I don't think it occurs to them. I think it's just become, it's, it, we become so oversaturated with art that we don't even see it. It's like, it's, it's like that idea of, you know, um, you know, the, the two fish in the fish, the two young fish in the fish tank and they're swimming along and then the old, and then an old fish comes by and says, How's the water, boys? And then the the two young fish go, what's water? Huh. You know, this idea that, I don't know, you need somebody to right. say that, yeah, this thing that you're surrounded with that you don't even realize, like, not only does it exist, but there can be a quality to it. Yeah, I think I think you're right that it has to do with saturation, but it also has to do with the way that art, the art that people are, the art with which people are saturated is more often not, than not presented to them as a commodity. Sure. And so I think it does take some, and I think this is what makes people cinephiles or, you know, 
jazz bows or whatever, whatever their thing is. The thing that makes them that is to step outside and say, uh, to step outside of the way that, um, things are being, uh, are offering, being offered to them and to process and to say, no, I'm going to process it in this other way. I'm going to approach it from another, from another way. Um, and therein lay, honestly, one of my big, frustrations with being a, a, a conservative who loves movies is that so many conservatives do think in terms of commodity um, <clears throat> that they are willing to assign that because, you know, they're spending money on, on music, they're spending money. So in that way, they approach it like any other business, but it is not that. And uh, so right. uh, it's an uphill battle, but you know what? I'm going to win it. But the upshot here is that uh, La La Land is fantastic. It is, um, yes. Which is not to, we'll get into, like, I'm not saying darn about the Oscars. Like, yeah. I'm, I'm very happy the Moonlight won, and, we, and I'm sure, I know you guys talked about that on the Oscar episode. We'll actually talk about it a little bit more on the uh, main episode this sure. week. Uh, so don't think that I'm sitting here grinding my teeth like, oh, how can Moonlight not, <laughs> how can Moonlight win? Like, right. I'm, I'm super happy the Moonlight won. Yeah, for a number of reasons. Yeah, all right, uh, next, you're up next. Next for me is John Ford's Wagon Master. Um, which is, uh, you know, a Western, uh, but doesn't it sound like a video game? Is there something you say at John Ford's? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's basically just like a, like a computer poker, but you're playing it in, in like an old West theme. Right. Um, yeah, uh, <coughs> that's actually very funny. I haven't thought of Well done. Um, so, uh, let's see who is the now I've forgotten who the lead of uh, oh it's uh, Ben Johnson um, is oh, the lead sure. of Wagon Master and it's a really it's it's a perfectly uh, not merely serviceable it's a very enjoyable uh, western and it's as tends to happen it's it's a western that um, that meanders a little bit but that just kind of makes sense really um, because of the nature of the story being told uh, but one thing that I will say is that it has a marvelous villain. Uh, the actor's name is Charles Kemper. I'd never seen him before. Well, that's not true. I saw him in Scarlet Street, but I don't remember who he is in that. Okay. Uh, he's an, an, now, one of the reasons that I don't know him very well is that he actually died in 1950, like right after, uh, right after filming Wagon Master. Uh, he was an overweight gentleman. He was, he did a lot of theater and the nature of this character is so different. He's just so there's a naturalism to him. There's a very specific type of charisma to him. And I feel like I just haven't seen that kind of villain or even that kind of character in classic Westerns before he just, he's so it's almost as strange as this may sound. It's almost like a, it's almost like a Cassavetti's character, the way mm. he carries himself, the way he comes in and just takes over every scene. It really is uh, amazing. The movie is very good, and and every performance is great. I, I like Ben Johnson quite a bit. Ward Bond is in it, and he's awesome. But really, I got to say, like it is worth watching for this character and this performance. I really can't say enough about it. But the movie is is again just the movie's worth it all around. All right. Um, now we're going to get into. There's going to be a theme for me of this movie journal in a lot of ways, which is uh, 
which has been a theme for the past couple of years since I made a New Year's resolution at the beginning of 2015, um, which is filling in blind spots. Oh, nice. So I, uh, uh, I, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, I, I, I can't think of a non-vulgar way to say it. So I watched my first Alejandro Jodorowsky or Jodorowsky. Oh, okay. However you say the last name movie. I had always, we talked going back months now, we talked about how a while back I watched fantastic voyage for the first time right. because I had always <clears throat> avoided it. Cause it looked like dumb druggy stuff. Sure. That's kind of how I always felt about <laughs> Jodorowsky. Yeah. I was like, this isn't for me. I'm not going to do mushrooms. Like I'm not, yeah. you know, uh, I, I, I shower every day. I'm not the kind of person who's going to enjoy this, uh, <laughs> this guy's movies. Um, and I'll say this, I loved fantastic. Uh, I said fantastic voyage, didn't I? Right. Fantastic planet is obviously what I meant. Uh, don't at me. Um, uh, I, I loved fantastic, uh, planet. Um, I watched Santa Sangre, okay. which then I've then been since been told on Twitter, this is like sort of his most accessible. So maybe I would like the more outre stuff better. Um, but I would kind of was like, yeah, I think this is kind of what I thought it was. That said, there's some terrific individual moments, mm-hmm. um, in sort of the individual tableau that he creates or just vision, just general visual ideas. Um, but mostly the movie, it's like two hours and it just sort of like, uh, goes from, well, how about this next? And it's like, and then by the end it's like, okay, I guess I see what the story of the movie was. It's kind of like a, um, you know, psychedelic psycho type of mm. type of movies about a murderer. Um, but, uh, it, it, it did feel kind of overlong and, but then every like 15 to 20 minutes, there'd be something visually where I'd be like, Oh, that's very cool. Mm. Um, like there's a, uh, <clears throat> there's a part where an ele- it takes place in the circus. I don't know if you know, uh, uh, the movie, but, um, there's a part where an elephant dies at the beginning, near the beginning. It's very sad. And then there's like a sort of, um, funeral procession, like walking funeral procession for an elephant where mm-hmm. they've made this enormous casket. Oh, wow. Um, and people are carrying it down the street and wounds in black. And there's this huge casket and they take it to a ravine and they like slide the casket into the ravine and it, like cracks open. And like the poor townspeople go break into the casket and start cutting up the dead elephant for meat. Oh, it's wow. a, it's, and it's a fucking awesome section. I was like, that's so cool. And there are a couple others. There's like the sort of, uh, aftermath of an all night, uh, street fair where it's just sort of painting across the street and you're seeing like hungover clowns and shit. It's yeah. like, it, there's all, there's all kinds of really cool stuff that happens, but, uh, it had to be surrounded by a lot of what I was afraid of, which is just kind of, uh, overindulgence. Yeah. Um, and it becomes, uh, uh, turgid and self-important and overlong. So, uh, I'm, it, but in a weird way, it made me more interested to watch El Topo and Holy Mountain. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so we'll, we'll see, um, you know, more on this story as it develops. I would like to do an episode about overindulgence. Okay. Uh, examples of it and actually just discussing if it even exists. Uh, that's a good point. Yeah. Because I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. Right. You're talking to a guy who loves Baz Luhrmann's movies, for instance, you know, that's great. Um, like if it's, if it's, if it's coherent and cohesive, Mm. um, and it, and it comes from a place of honesty, 
then it works for me. And obviously this comes down to individual taste in, in a lot of ways, but, um, it, yeah, it didn't work for me with, uh, Santa Sangre overall. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't say I hated it. Like I said, every 20 minutes, if, I mean like that's, there's a lot of movies where that something cool doesn't happen every 20 minutes. Yeah. So obviously I would, I would pick this over, over those, but, uh, didn't, yeah, didn't, uh, didn't light my heart on fire, I guess. Right. Moving on. Moving on for me, I saw James Mangold's Logan. <clears throat> uh, I finally wrote my review uh, last night because I was having such a hard time getting getting a handle on this hmm. movie. Partially because here and there I would see, you know, tweets from people or, or stuff on Facebook. I never read any of the, any of these articles, but people saying like this movie is genius, this movie is brilliant, this movie is revelatory. And I was like, this, I don't see any of that. That's, I'm, I'm, I'm interested to hear you say that because like I, um, sorry to hijack your stuff, but I like over the course, I don't know if it has anything to, do, something to do with this podcast or just the specific time in my life that this podcast is covered. But over the course of this podcast, um, uh, this podcast existence, I've become less and less interested in sort of the big tentpole genre blockbuster right. type of movies. Um, and I've sort of gravitated towards critics who feel the same way I do. And yet I've seen, even from the critics, I wouldn't expect to hear this from, I've I've heard a lot of praise for Logan. Yeah. Amy is over the moon about it. Mm -hmm. I saw her at the, at the screening and, uh, here's the thing. It's two movies. It is. Well, I mean, I didn't pay, uh, (laughs) but, um, In fact, they gave us free popcorn and soda, which is weird at 10.30 a.m., I should say. Um, Wait, is that all true? Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Um, So, excuse me. On one hand, you've got this standard story, you know, a very standard story, not merely comic book story, but just action movie story of, you know, Lone Wolf and Cub, basically, where this old grizzled guy runs across an innocent, it could be a boy or a girl, whatever it is, and decides I'm going to do what I can to protect this kid. Um, in this case, it's a little girl and she comes with, you know, a lot of baggage of her own as well. Uh, but you know, it's, it's nothing new. Uh, last year there was, um, blood father, which this actually has a great deal in common with, not the least of which is we've got this old bearded guy who takes this woman, uh, this girl under his wing in in the midst of like a desert uh, area. And so we've seen that a bunch and it's to me only mildly interesting. It's well done, but it's only mildly interesting. So that's one, that's one movie. And I think that's whatever. Then you have this other movie that is, that reminded me, when I really started thinking about it, it's like about Schmidt or it's like Venus. It is this older man who has outlived everybody he knows and is just tired of being here, but is still, but his survive, but his instinct is survival. And so he just keeps going, but is just slowly, but surely losing his reason for continuing. And on that level, it's great because that's focusing in on the character mm. it's and it allows Hugh Jackman a little bit of freedom to really explore this character and on that you know on that score the movie is quite good and so i would recommend it but you know whatever <coughs> whatever 
profundity that you would find is a function of the character. If you view it as a character study, you're going to do okay. And it's called Logan. It, you know, it makes sense why, uh, that, that it would be, that it would work in that way. Uh, you know, but then the story kicks in and it's just, you know, very standard, very by the numbers, but at its core, it has Wolverine played by Hugh Jackman dealing with what it means to be Wolverine. And on that level, it's actually quite good. But so I, I'm, I was kind of at war with it. I think out of five stars, I think I probably go three and a half, okay. but it's a strong three and a half. And, and if you like the X-Men movies, I think you'll like it. Okay. Um, now I said I was, uh, not into, uh, you know, big genre blockbusters, mm-hmm. but, uh, I'll tell you what I, the, the next thing on my list, which we've already talked about in the podcast is, uh, the great wall, Jean Nemo's right. the, the great wall, uh, which I thought was a delight. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a, I'm a big fan. I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry to hear that it is not doing well <laughs> at the box office. Unfortunately, I didn't think it was going to do well. It just didn't um, seem like the type of movie that would do well. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, I guess we're kind of going back to what I was saying before about our generation. There's definitely a lack of irony to it. Yeah. It feels like a sort of, uh, you know, Roger Corman throwback or like a, um, Sinbad type Ray Harryhausen type of yeah. like, uh, you know, corny, um, but extravagant, uh, like monster fantasy, uh, you know, um, action movie throwback. Um, and it is, uh, here's what I said. And I, I, I can't remember if I've said this on the podcast or not, but in many ways it is exactly the kind of movie that I wanted Pacific Rim to be. Mm. I went into Pacific Rim with my hopes very high uh, and it was very much let down. I even went to see it again. I saw Pacific Rim twice in the theater um, and didn't like it at the time. Um, uh, uh, unfortunately, whereas the great wall is fun where Pacific Rim was dour. It is um, inventive where Pacific Rim was often, I think, kind of samey mm-hmm. and i mean that in two ways i mean in its set pieces and action ideas you know great wall has like you know it's set in you know the uh 13th century or whatever but it has like like essentially like bungee jumping with spears to kill like uh monsters it has like blades that come out of the side of the great wall to like cut monsters up as they're like trying to scale the wall it has like so much fun ideas many fun ideas and it has this like the the chinese army that that that's at the great wall like as it exists in different like these ones do the bungee jumping thing like this is the aerial these are the 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 bowmen or whatever and everyone has very the very specific colored armor very brightly very bright and clean colored so they're armor. like they're like it, uh, foot soldiers in the ninja turtles video game yeah yeah each one uh, has a very specific weapon they're all colored differently yes exactly and it's that kind of fun and then i also mean in terms of the characters now in neither movie gray wall or pacific rim are the characters particularly deep sure but in great wall they are as archetypes distinct from one another whereas with maybe the exception of um the the lone female character in pacific rim uh that i found a little bit interesting most of the characters in pacific rim you can barely even tell them from one another most of the time yeah. um <clears throat> uh so basically yeah like i said i've we talked about Great Wall before, so I guess I thought I'd bring it up again just to go back in time three and a half years and shit on Pacific Rim some more <laughs> because I'm weirdly like mad that it, the sequel's happening. Although the female lead of Great Wall, aka the Chinese lead of mm. Great Wall, is going to be in Pacific Rim too. Oh, apparently. interesting. Like 
Great Wall was her first, like, I mean, it's a co-production, but it was the first, like, English language-ish role. But she's got, um, she's in Kong, Skull Island, coming out this week. I can't wait. I'm so really? excited. I'm so excited for it. Um, <laughs> I'm a sucker for certain. You know I'm a, I, I like creature features. You've got to watch The Great Wall, then. I it's, want to. It's up your alley. Um, and then she's got Pacific Rim coming out. She's terrific. Um, I'm already forgetting her name. But my, uh, my review's up on the website. Uh, so go see Great Wall if it's, if it's still in any theaters. Yeah. It's already, uh, yeah, it's, it's failing. All right. So uh, speaking of blockbusters, we are now entering uh, the period where I was watching movies while sick. So okay. uh, some of these I haven't seen in a while and some I've seen many times, like this next one, which is Avengers Age of Ultron. I've seen it many times at this point. Really? Um, I've seen it twice. Liked it both times. And yeah, every time I see it, uh, the things I don't like about it are still very clear. The things I do like about it are, they vastly outnumber the things I don't like. Do you find that with that, with this kind of movie, I feel like you go, I go one of two ways. Okay. The Dark Knight is a movie that I loved the first time. Every time I rewatch it, the stuff that I don't like about it bothers me a little bit more. Whereas uh, okay. take 2012's the Avengers. Sure. 35 minutes into that movie, I was sitting next to you in the screening. Yeah. And I was thinking like, what a bummer. I don't like this movie. Yeah. And then by the end I like it. And now whenever I rewatch the Avengers, it's the opposite. The stuff that bothers me about the Avengers mm-hmm. bothers me less every time I watch it. Uh, and, and so you're saying age of Ultron, which, which side is that? Is it on? Oh, definitely uh, positive. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, especially compared to what some people say. Like, some people consider it, like, one of the lesser films of the MCU, and I think... And people don't give Ultron en- uh, enough due as a Marvel villain. When people talk about uh, Marvel has a villain problem, which it does, um, they mention Loki and then maybe one or two others, and then they don't talk about Ultron, but he is a very... I'm not sure if I'd say he's well-defined, but he's played well. It's a unique design. He's a genuine threat and he has a pulse, which is more than can be said for almost any Thor villain. Um, or, or like, or like any galactic villain is what I mean. Like from Thor, the dark world or, or guardians of the galaxy or whatever. Um, and then I, and as always, I like the, uh, the interaction between the characters. I feel like you get a real sense of history there. I will say that, uh, After a while, and you know I'm not, I, I came around on Joss Whedon, but every once in a while he can be a little bit too precious and uh, with his quips, okay. and, uh, and that definitely comes through in this. I don't think it gets me really at all in the first Avengers, but here... Well, what are your... Uh, like when... Um, it's You know what? It's when the, the very serious villains start to... Uh, play a role like for example there's a part where um tony stark uh sees this room full of hydra agents and he says he's like he goes it says like come on guys let's talk and then he like knocks them all out or, yeah. or or wounds all of them and they're like just laying on the floor moaning and he says good talk and then one guy says no it wasn't and it's like come on yeah, that's bad. That is, that is, if, if. Okay, that's not the kind of, that didn't, that doesn't even seem like a specifically Joss Whedon-ish thing. That just seems like bad. I feel like the let's talk, good talk is the Joss Whedon part. Right. No, it wasn't. feels like, feels weird that he, that it's even in there. Yeah, it's uh, no thank you. But here's my thing, because I'm obviously a big Joss Whedon fan, but I kind of see where you're coming from. I think his dialogue 
is best when underplayed. And I think the problem is sometimes sure. with people like Robert Downey Jr. or James Spader, you've got hams. They're hammy yeah. to begin with yeah. and they play it up. Whereas of all people, Jeremy Renner knocks it out of the park when he has that thing about like the city is flying, we're fighting an army of robots. I've bow and bow and arrow. Nothing, Nothing makes, makes sense. sense. Yeah. That's it. And he's, it's delivered so well. Yeah. Because he and Chris Evans both do a really good job of, of undercutting mm-hmm. that, that, uh, uh, the tendency towards, towards, I'd say, uh, preciousness. But again, like it ought, anytime the, the Avengers are quipping with each other, they know each other. They're friends. Okay, yeah. They will develop a certain cadence with one another. And in that instance, it doesn't bother me. The banter doesn't bother me. It's only when they start bringing in these other characters. I'm like, I'm not, uh, I don't like that the entire world is on the same page as far as how they're going to talk to each other. It's what I don't like about certain mammoth movies. But, um, anyway, yeah, but I, absolutely. That's, that's another director that if it's, <laughs> if, if the, if the performer doesn't do it right, or I say director, another writer. Yeah. Um, Although oddly enough, it's usually at its worst when he's directing. Um, well, I think that almost like goes through the looking glass to me when he's directing because he's like so locked down on like making his actors say the words a certain way yeah. that it, it achieves a kind of completeness. You sure. Know? Like it, it can't, if every line is said that way, then it can't be jarring. Right. So it becomes like you're in another world, like a John Wick type of uh, alternate universe. Yeah. But I think you got to I think when it comes down to it, I think, you know, James Foley was able to adapt his directing style to the different acting styles of all of his care of all of his actors. I don't think David Mamet is quite that nimble. Um, So there will be actors that are just so damn good, like a Gene Hackman, that they can just adapt to his style. And then there are some actors that seem like they need more direction and he does not want to give it to them. He's, he's, uh, he's been on the record as saying, he, he said, the script will do the acting for you. Mm, sorry, I don't think you know how actors work. <laughs> right, yeah. um, but anyway, okay, sorry, we can move on. What's All next right. for you? Back to my filling in the gaps. Now, you know I'm a big fan of Duck Soup. Yeah. But I had never seen A Night at the Opera. Right. Oh my God, it's so good. Have you seen A Night at the Opera? No, the only Marx Brothers film I've seen is Duck Soup. Um, well, Which uh, one is your preference? Um, God, I still, love, I still love Duck Soup so much. But A Night at the Opera might have my favorite... Uh, I say it's so good. This is another thing. Like While I was watching it, I was like, this is pretty good. But then when I think back, I think about just the good parts. Yeah, yeah. Because um, it's that the most... That makes sense... For- that makes sense with an old timey comedy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is the most of the, from what I understand, because I haven't seen all of them, but from the, of the Marx brothers, this is the most, um, it's, it has a story that makes the most sense because mm-hmm. it was directed by a director who doesn't do comedy. And apparently I was reading, there was a lot of, um, disagreement on, on, <laughs> on set, uh, between the, the Marx brothers and the director whose name I'm forgetting, who was a studio guy. And this was like an existing script that they sort of grafted Marx brothers stuff onto. Oh, yeah. And he like, um, didn't really understand the Marx brothers comedy, but still man- managed to make a really funny movie. Um, and, um, apparently, um, uh, the director instituted a, fine for any 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 actors who were late to set and at first Groucho Marx who I guess could be kind of a taskmaster himself was fine with that until the other Marx brothers nailed Groucho Marx's garage door shut (laughs) to make make him late um uh anyway that's a story that I read um 
But uh, yeah, it's nice to know the Marx Brothers are actually the Marx Brothers. Oh yeah, uh, there's so many stories uh, about uh, about them. Um, how they like uh, what was it? They were supposed to turn in a script, and um, they like what? I, I can't remember the the story, but they left it. They were like, we left it in your office, and the guy goes in. There's no script anywhere in his office until he looks on the ceiling and he realizes they have ripped the script they wrote into pieces and taped the pieces to the ceiling and so he had to get them down and put the script back together um, uh that's fantastic to me um anyway that's not the 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 point here um the point is that the movie is very funny it has some very uh inspired um set pieces like the part where Crash and Marx's character they're on a, a steamer um from italy to uh italy to new york although the movie never says italy apparently because of escalating tensions in the lead up to world war two, any references to the fact that half the movie takes place in Italy were taken out. Hmm. So it, it is, it isn't clear. They never like they, the, um, cause apparently there was a whole opening musical number that uh, doesn't exist anymore. Um, uh, uh, that like introduced sort of like beauty and the beast, like bell, like walking through the town. It was like going through the right. town, um, up to the, the opera anyway. Um, so, uh, there's the, yeah, the part where they're in a steamer and people, Garch Marx has the smallest possible stateroom, but he's also trying to smuggle two other characters as stowaways. And then more and more people keep showing up, uh, in, in the room. Um, it's, a um, there's a one point where like uh, a woman comes in knocks on the door and she says, uh, at this point there's already like eight people in this tiny room yeah. and she's like, is my aunt in there? And, and Gosh, Mark says, I don't think so, but I bet you can find someone just as good. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. Um, but, uh, we'll move on in a second. Cause I, I, but though I do want to highlight night of the opera. I think I still prefer duck soup, but night of the opera has probably my favorite Gar- Groucho Marx line of all time where, like I said, he's hiding these, these people, mm. Um, uh, and the police inspector comes to try and find them. They go hide out on the balcony. Um, and so Groucho Marx is just pretending to be sitting at the breakfast table alone. And the, the inspector, the cop or whatever says, uh, you're alone or whatever. He's like, yeah, he's like, uh, but I, <laughs> he's like, I noticed the table is set for four. And Groucho Marx says, that's nothing. My alarm clock is set for eight. That doesn't prove anything. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, anyway, let's move on. Okay. Uh, next up I watched, um, Tangled or rather rewatched Tangled, which I haven't seen. I don't think I'd seen since the theater. Uh, Tangled is marvelous. Have you ever seen it? No, I haven't. It is. It's, it's designed so well, uh, from an, you know, I guess it's all art direction, but you know what I mean? Like as far as the world that is created entangled is, is unique. Um, the tower Rapunzel's tower is, you know, the essence of Rapunzel's tower. Um, it has character to it and, um, and just the way the woods look, the way, you know, uh, there's this moment where like a dam breaks open and water just comes flooding over everybody. Like it's just, it's so visually, complete in every way. Uh, I like the story. I like the way the story unfolds. I think the, the voice work is great. Um, 
and I think the jokes are consistently uh, funny as well. And there are both um, verbal jokes and and visual jokes. And it just and I enjoy the music as well. It really does just add up to this really consistent. I'd say a a modern animated classic. Jen and I uh, keep wanting to design and order T-shirts that we would wear to Disneyland, in which it, it, the T-shirts simply say "Tangled was better," uh, because. <laughs> Because everyone's You'd be escorted off the premises. And that's probably true. <laughs> um, but uh, and it's interesting because the minute I say that, everybody knows that I'm talking about Frozen. Um, the two came out within a, a year of each yeah. other, and Frozen, which is also go- gorgeous visually, um, but it's a mess uh, musically, and and it has the two. It has a really interesting relationship between two female characters, which are sisters, and I think that's what makes it so unique that's but, certainly what i respond to yeah about i like that, that and i well, i like the songs i don't know what you mean about the i hate those damn rock trolls and then the very first song does not fit with the story or the setting at all i don't remember it yeah it sounds like something it sounds hawaiian but anyway um so I, uh, my um my uh disneyland t-shirt would be Come on, guys, give Brave another chance. Brave is really good. It would be very small. Fine. <laughs> I, I do feel like Brave is a seriously underrated uh, recent period Disney movie. And I didn't like it that much uh, either. I'd be willing to revisit it myself. But uh, I will say that. That's one of my favorite Disney princesses. Who's your favorite it's Disney princess? Oh, okay. <laughs> Don't interrupt me. Um, <laughs> I will say that Tangled has maybe one of the best Disney villains ever as far as how dastardly and how selfish she is. It is way up there. The idea that it's been, it's basically this woman who, um, kidnaps Rapunzel when she's very young and Rapunzel's like, uh, hair has these magical properties that can restore youth. And, uh, Mm. so she steals her for that reason. Um, and just raises her as her own daughter. And you would think that after, I think like 16 years or that this woman would develop some level of affection for her. And she seems to have affection, but it is 100% manufactured. Like she does not, she is so consumed with herself that, uh, that the idea that even 18 years, uh, 16 years is not enough, mm-hmm. uh, to, to develop, a, a, any kind of real bond, except in that she, she has just enough of a bond to manipulate Rapunzel emotionally. Um, it really is a, a fascinating, uh, character. Um, what is the better magical hair movie? Okay. We're talking about movies being better tangled or the peanut butter. There solution. we go. <laughs> uh, well, obviously it's that one. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't seen that movie in so long. It's not readily available, right? I don't know. Yeah, I saw it at the Cine Family a few years ago, right? Um, which I, was a delight. Yeah, I grew up on that one. Uh, I did not, um, but uh, yeah, I um, there was maybe about a year ago on uh, my favorite podcast slash internet radio show, the best show. Mm-hmm. He did an episode. Tom did an episode where the theme was: is that if there's a thing from your youth that you're trying to remember what it is call in and describe it and oh. either I or the listeners will be able to tell you, you know, jog your memory about what it is. And as soon as I heard the topic, I was like, 
someone's going to call in about the peanut butter butter solution because that's exactly that type of movie. Exactly. Because it's so weird that if you saw it as a kid and then didn't see it for 20 years, you'd be like, is that real? Did I really see that? And then someone called in and and like just the very beginning was like, it's a kid and he's walking his bike and then he goes into this burnt out house. And I I was like, that's a peanut butter solution. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And that's, I, I I could, uh, I love when people, so you've seen it one of my favorite things in life is to bring up the peanut butter solution and someone not be familiar with it so that I can tell them the story of the peanut butter solution. Here it is. Now, you know, I, okay. yeah. So this kid goes into it this creeped me out. Here's it. It's a, this, this kid lives on a house or lives on a street down the street from him. There's a house, uh, an abandoned house with a lot of homeless people live in one night. There's a fire in that house and all the homeless people are killed. Mm-hmm. This is a children's movie. Yeah. Um, the next day he's walking home from school with his buddy and his buddy dares him to go into like the burned out remains of the house. He goes in there. He sees a ghost or a couple of ghosts mm-hmm. uh, and it scares him so bad. All his hair falls out. Yeah. That night I'm thinking that night. Uh, it's been a while. Um, one of the ghosts or a couple of the ghosts again, I don't remember come to him like, Hey, sorry, we made all your hair fall out. Here's a recipe for a solution that will grow your hair back real quick, yeah. but make sure you follow it precisely don't use too much peanut butter yeah so of course this dumb kid uses too much peanut butter and his hair won't stop growing yeah it's just growing like yards every hour like it won't stop growing um and then okay now here's where the story gets weird (laughs) somehow the art teacher who is the villain of the movie. The villain of this movie is an elementary school art teacher. Yeah. <laughs> Somehow he finds out that if you make a paintbrush out of this hair and paint a picture with it, then you can step into the painting. It yes. makes paintings like come to life in a way. It makes them immersive. And so he kidnaps the kid and starts a factory in an abandoned warehouse where he has the kid strapped down and his hair is just growing down an assembly line and he kidnaps, I guess essentially the rest of the class. You know what? I forgot about the factory. And then, yeah. And then he turns them into like essentially slave labor, just making paintbrushes, making magical paintbrushes all day. And then I guess some of the kids rescue him. I can't remember how it ends, Uh, but what a crazy, awesome movie. That is a miracle of a film. Yes. All right. Um, is it my turn? seems like draft house films would, would <laughs> snatch that up. So uh, yeah, we, I would like to get a good, yeah, a good Blu-ray. Yeah. Um, I want a Blu-ray with hours of special features <laughs> and like eight different critics commentaries. <laughs> yeah, just like just someone really trying to get to the bottom of <laughs> uh, what everyone was thinking. Um, it's based on a book though, isn't it? I oh, I don't know. I didn't actually anyway, know. Uh, maybe it's not. Probably All written right. by, uh, oh, hell, now I forget. H.P. Lovecraft. <laughs> <laughs> um all right. Uh, speaking of, again, filling in blanks, I'm a big Pedro Almodovar fan, but I had never seen one of his biggest movies, uh, Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown. Hmm. Have you seen this one? I have not. It's great. It's actually, it's fantastic. Um, uh, it's kind of a, I guess it's a farce, essentially. It's um, uh, a woman finds out that the uh, married man she's been having an affair with is ending their relationship and is going off to on vacation with another woman that he's having an affair with. Um, and then so one day all at the same time, um, 
this the guy's her ex lover's son and his fiance come to her apartment under the guise of because she's planning on moving away and subletting. Uh, but really, they just want to get clo- like find out about this woman that his father was <laughs> sleeping with mm. at the same time that her friend um, who has been kidnapped in her own own house by a group of uh, Shiite Muslim terrorists um, that she was having sex with uh, has escaped and needs a place to hide out. And then at the same time, this guy's actual wife, wife, the mother of Antonio Banderas's character, the son, um, it has been let out of prison or a mental institution and is coming to kill, I don't know, either her husband or Carmen Mara's character or whoever gets in her way. Um, and also there is a, um, Chekhov's gun type of situation with a, um, picture of gazpacho filled with barbiturates. <laughs> well, you've definitely described uh, an Almodovar film. Uh, yeah. there's a lot of facets to it. Yeah. And a perfect farce. It, like yeah. once you get to the apartment, uh, you know, it takes, it's, it's, it's almost half hour into the movie before things actually set, settle down in the apartment. Once you get there, that's essentially where you are until the very end when it goes to the, um, the airport. Um, and, uh, it's, uh, it's a delight and it is almost, uh, I mean, Almodovar has, um, a reputation for, uh, telling stories about women and for, uh, giving, you know, great spotlights to, to great female, um, actors and Carmen Maura, who apparently hated Elmodovar from what I read. I love reading trivia about movies after, after I really like a movie. Yeah. I like reading trivia, even though I know, um, uh, that, um, most of it's apocryphal or whatever, but, uh, Carmen Maura is absolutely terrific. Kind of like she kind of reminded me of Isabel Huppert in the things to come. The movie I loved from last year where she's like, this seems like a typical movie, typical type of situation. She's, you know, jilted lover or whatever, but she's not reacting in typical ways. Like she's an incredibly independent person. Who's also super pissed off at the way that she's been treated, but also just kind of like over it and jaded about Mm -hmm. it at the same time. Um, and so she'll eventually like, come to action and do the right thing, but only because it's like, uh, she does it almost like begrudgingly. Uh, there's, there's a sort of, um, uh, underplayed sort of Buster Keaton like humor to the way that she endures the proceedings. Yeah. Uh, anyway, it's a, it's a terrific movie. All right. So next up is something of a double feature, but I will talk about one at a time. That's the way we do things here. Uh, so, I was feeling, as tends to happen when I'm sick, it really uh, made me feel emotionally down and feel emotionally tired along with physically tired. And so uh, as as will sometimes happen, I, I wanted to watch a movie in which the characters reflected my state of mind. So I thought, you know, I'm, I'm sick and tired. Um, and I feel really overwhelmed with all the stuff I have to do, but I'm too tired to do it. So I thought like, oh, I'm going to enter into the world of John Le Carre. Uh, <laughs> so I watched, I rewatched A Most Wanted Man. Oh. Um, have you seen it? I forget. Yes, I have seen okay. it. Okay. And 
yeah, it's still great. Anton Corbin directed it. It's it has such a sense of pacing. And when you consider how little quote unquote happens, like ultimately just we want to get this guy to sign this document. Like nobody's actually in any danger of being physically hurt. Uh, people are in danger of being abducted by, you know, the government and that sort of thing. And it's understand, it's understood that we're dealing with potential terrorists. So someone somewhere will get hurt, but our characters are never really in that kind of danger. And yet it's tense. It is, um, it is, uh, a very cynical film as well. And it creates just some really, really interesting, some really wonderful characters played by, uh, uh, a cast that, you wouldn't immediately associate with this kind of thing. Like the character that Willem Dafoe plays is not a weirdo as Willem Dafoe often plays. He's just a regular guy who wants to do the right thing and wants to distance himself from like the, the corruption that his father engaged in. And so just such an odd, uh, a crucial character to the film, but such an odd bit of casting, but Willem Dafoe really, uh, lived, uh, you know, I'd say rises to the occasion. He's a great actor. We all know that. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> Uh, but it definitely made me realize how much I miss Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah. Boy, as a screen, pr- it's it's his last performance. Uh, that and I think was well, it's the last Hunger Games. Re- that's right. Yes, yes, that's right. Um, uh, I guess last lead performance is what I mean. Um, and it just. I feel like I immediately felt like, okay, I need to go back and watch Capote. I need to go back and watch the master. I need to watch all of his films because love Liza, love Liza. Yeah. Um, owning Mahoney, uh, is another one. Um, but, uh, he is just so, he was such a unique presence. He had such power, uh, you know, he was a bigger guy. So obviously he had, he had an, there was an imposing quality to him, but just, you know, I, I watched some special features, and so I, I saw him talking about his character, and I realized, wow, he sure is acting in A Most Wanted Man. Not in a way that, that screams acting, but it's more mm-hmm. just when you see how he carries himself and how he talks, and then you compare that with the character himself, you're like, wow, he really does embody every character that he plays, and just imbues them with such weight and such history. Um, and he's just such a, he was such an unselfconscious actor as well. Uh, that, yeah, I miss him tremendously. Um, <clears throat> I, again, filling in blind spots, I watched DW Griffith's broken blossoms. Hmm. Um, and I had been thinking about watching this movie for a long time ever since, uh, we had as a guest on the show, um, Charles Epting. Is that it? Yes. Name? Uh, cause he talked about broken blossoms in particular. He, he, he talked about, uh, and for those who don't know, Charles does the, um, silent film quarterly. Mm-hmm. And he's a, a guy who's, uh, what, like at this point, probably 21, 22 years old. Um, maybe 23, 24. I don't okay. remember exactly. Um, and watches pretty much exclusively silent movies. Yeah. Um, he just wrote a book about baby Daniels. Uh, there you go. Um, anyway, but he was talking about broken blossoms and how from our current point of view, it's crazy and offensive that you've got this, you know, very white British actor playing the Chinese lead role. Yeah. Um, but that obscures that nothing that this, nothing that's ever okay, but what it obscures is that for the time, 1919, I guess is when this movie came out. The fact that 
you've got a movie where the lead role is a sympathetic Chinese character mm-hmm. was um, uh, was a was a huge deal and was yeah. was not something that you saw uh, all the time. So I was kind of watching it with that in mind, um, but I was also reminded of a conversation you and I had much more recently about how sometimes older movies will have things that were coded as racist or homophobic or whatever at the time that go over our heads now. Yeah. Um, or, or go under our radar now or whatever. This is the opposite. I think, um, this is, uh, the, the level of racism that this character endures in this movie, I think is even, it's even more shocking than now than it would have been then because people probably, you know, knew people who, um, uh, who talked like that or knew people who would have threatened say to beat their own daughter to death rather than have her, uh, be in love with a Chinese man, mm. um, that, that sort of thing. Uh, and it, it, it's interesting. It brings, uh, it, it's, it's shocking, but it also takes what I'm guessing played as more of a sort of social realist drama at the time and makes it almost like a fable now because mm. everything's in such broad strokes from our point of view. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Um, and, uh, it's, a marvelously uh, well-made movie, even if it does get, I think a little bit repetitive in its characterizations. Like, I feel like we like, like the, the, the villain who is the girl's uh, adoptive father um, is awful. I mean, he's a truly awful, awful character. And I do feel like after four scenes, maybe four separate scenes of him being awful, there is a part where it's like, can we just like get to the part where, you know, he gets shot or whatever. <laughs> like, um, uh, I'm not learning anything new. This is just like torturous at this point to see him, you know, beating his, his daughter or, or spouting off this incredibly, uh, vile racism. But, uh, yeah, it's a, a terrific movie that is obviously capital P problematic, uh, in some ways, but, um, also, you know, uh, stands as a reminder that people are, that people from the past aren't as homogenous as we think of them are, think of them and people individually aren't homogenous because DW Griffith made, you know, arguably the most racist movie of all time. (laughs) Um, and then, uh, you know, spent a few years maybe kind of trying to atone for that with intolerance and with broken bosses. Yeah, undoubtedly. Yeah. Uh, people are, people are complex, not saying Mm -hmm. it, you know, forgives the racism in, in, the birth of the nation, but, um, uh, it's, you know, it makes it, inter- makes him, it makes him more interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay. So next up, uh, the second, uh, John LeCar adapt- adaptation, uh, that I watched is uh, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, which you may recall I didn't really care for when I first saw it. And as time has gone on, it, uh, it has. Yeah, this uh, was a this was a, a top ten for me uh, the year it came out. Um, was it really? Oh, interesting. I don't think I knew. I don't think I remember that you liked it that much. Um, yeah, a lot of people really I liked doubt it. Myself, as soon as I said that, so I'm going to look up my okay. list. Uh, a lot of people really loved it. I didn't like it that much, but uh, since then it has grown on me. I think partially because of uh, the complexity of the story that in watching it a second time is like, all right, I've got all of that straight and who everybody is. And now I can actually focus on who these characters really are. Um, boy, the film is just such a, 
you know, yes, it takes place in the 1970s, uh, so officially it's a period piece. But when we think of period pieces, we tend to think, you know, Victorian era, era and stuff like that, and Elizabethan costumes and all that. Um, right. But this is just, you know, offices and houses and men in suits and all of that. Um, and But you still need to create a world, especially with those offices, because the offices are there's not a fantastical quality to them quite the opposite. They seem quite drab, but, um, but we are dealing with spy stuff. And so there are certain areas where, okay, we got to, you know, we, we're going to meet in this soundproof room. So there, so the art direction has to feel very lived in, but also a little bit heightened. You know, this is not the, the, uh, the, the news office from all the president's men or anything like that, but it needs to still, Register is just a place where people go and and fill out forms all day. Um, and yeah, uh, Gary Oldman was, uh, I'd say, rightfully nominated for Best Actor because that is just such an unassuming mm-hmm. performance, but one of just such power. Just a guy who has lived a whole life and has made choices. He's not always happy with them, but you can't really do anything about them now. And and uh, I don't know. It's a, it really is a, a film that, um, that I'm glad I returned to, but I also feel in retrospect, I feel that there was something still compelling about the film to me that made me want to return to it. Um, and that is just the command of tone that, uh, Thomas Alfredson, right? Uh, yeah. Um, Probably Tomas. Tomas, probably yes. Um, just the tone that he strikes, and just the world that he creates. It's just that it's that John Lacara thing, which I like. You know, spy who came in from the cold and uh, a most wanted man. That for some reason I just like living with these characters because the world feels so lived in. Did you watch uh, the Night Manager? The, I did not the miniseries. It's still on my DVR. I haven't watched it yet. Yeah, but, uh, I've heard anyway, great things. Um, yeah, uh, my top ten Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy number six okay. of twenty eleven. Right, right, just ahead of the Mill and the Cross at number seven, and just behind House of Pleasures. Um, All right, uh, or or House of Tolerance, depending on what country you were in when it was released. Um, anyway, what is next for me? Okay, I watched a documentary um, that's a couple years old. It's available on on Amazon called Out in the Night. And it is the, uh, it looks at these, uh, four women or there were actually seven involved in the incident, but three of them, uh, took plea bargains and weren't really involved in the, the trial and all this stuff. So they're not part of it. Um, but, uh, one night in Manhattan, um, four, uh, let's just say four, uh, these, um, lesbian women were walking together down the street. Um, a man said something, you know, like a cat call type vulgar thing to them. It escalated. Um, these women ended up, um, uh, beating him up and one of them stabbed him. He's fine, but he did get stabbed. Yeah. Um, and, uh, these four of these women who didn't take the four of the seven women, um, uh, went to, went to prison and, um, uh, or at least for a while, there's eventually an appeal and, and they're all out now. Um, and, uh, so I think the movie, I think I'm not sure how much of this I'm projecting, but I think it, it takes on the point of view that to maybe someone like you and me, you hear 
and you, you know, people who are generally, uh, who are opposed to, to cat calling and street harassment right. and that sort of thing. Um, but to hear like, well, seven women beat the crap out of this guy and stabbed him seems like, uh, seems like a disproportionate response. Mm-hmm. Uh, what the movie attempts is to put you into the mindset of a black gay woman, mm-hmm. um, from a, because uh, it's in Manhattan, but they're all from, uh, a poor part of Newark, New Jersey. Um, so from a crime ridden area, uh, a violence ridden area where they are particularly singled out because they are black and gay and female, Mm -hmm. um, that, um, there might be a culture that, um, causes them to, uh, to take precautions that you and I wouldn't think to take. Uh, and then it also looks at the coverage of it in which the term gang was repeatedly used. These mm. women don't have gang affiliations. Um, but there were the, some racial undertones to the word gang, yeah. certainly. And it's because there is, on the books in New York, and this is what they're charged with, there's a charge called gang assault. Mm. But has nothing to do with what we think right, of right. organized crime or or, or that l- sort of gang, like the term gang rape, for example. Right. Yes. yes. It, uh, and yeah. So they were charged with gang assault, and so so much of the coverage became about like this describing them as like a, a roving pack of lesbians. <laughs> like uh, it, it was very, um, it, you know, depicted them as predators, um, and and then it also uh, obscured that the way that this guy acted was actually a little more confrontational and more physical than, um, than the description of the situation, um, uh, would imply, which we, which we get to learn how he acted. Um, thankfully because this happened right outside of the IFC center, uh, and they have security cameras pointed, uh, out on the street and be able to see him like, grab a wound by a hair, by her hair. Like he ripped the weave out of one of this, mm. the, this girl's, uh, this girl's head. Um, uh, and, uh, yeah, it's, um, a really, a really interesting documentary. I would imagine someone who is gay or black or female or any of, or any combination of those things might have a different, it wouldn't be as revelatory to them as it was sure. to me. But, um, I, uh, I really in, enjoy, or not maybe I don't enjoy. I find it very edifying to to be shown how to see the world from a point of view that I'm not that isn't off wouldn't be offered to me if it weren't for art. For going back sure. to, to our conversation from earlier uh, in the episode, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't uh, I, I wouldn't know. Um, it, it's it's sort of like to get off topic and then we'll move on. But did you hear? Sorry. Did you hear the brouhaha over this Walking Dead T-shirt? Oh, it's the so it's the it's the bad, right? Well, it's 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 Negan and the bad, I guess, on the shirt, yeah. and it says on it "Eeny, meeny, miny, mo," which I guess I didn't watch the episode. I'm guessing that's something yeah, he said. it's how he chooses which who he's going to be. Right, death. and so there was an uproar about this shirt being racist. And I was like, that made me very made, you know, me do a Dwayne Johnson type, like uh, eyebrow raise. Yeah. Um, but now you and I know the next line of eeny, meeny, miny, mo is what, uh, uh, catch a tiger by the toe. Right. So apparently going back a long time, uh, it wasn't tiger oh, in this right. rhyme. It was something else. And I can tell you as a, 
privileged white person, even when I learned that I was like, well, that doesn't necessarily make the shirt racist. Right. But I have a, a rule for myself, which is anytime I have that thought, I take a step back and realize maybe I should be listening to the people who have been subject to racism their entire life and not decide for myself. Maybe I, you know, maybe I should hear them out and give them the benefit of the doubt. Like with the, um, this is going back years, but, and we've talked about this in the podcast too. The, um, there was some red carpet commentator who said a woman with, uh, there was a black woman with dreadlocks on the red carpet and she Mm -hmm. said it, she assumed that the woman smelled like, I can't remember what it was now, like hemp and patchouli or whatever it was. Um, and that didn't strike me as racist at all, but right. um, that's because I've spent most of my life around white people. And when I think of people with dreadlocks or when I think of hemp and patchouli, I think of Trustafarians. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah, of white kids, shitty, annoying white kids. Yeah. Um, but it helps to, you know, you know, you and I are white and based on your definition of racism, yeah. we've never really suffered racism. I mean... I have, you know, I've, sometimes I go to Chinese restaurants and they give me a fork and I have to ask for chopsticks. So oh, I kind of get it, you know, I kind of get it. But, um, uh, this all circles back to, uh, out in the night, um, which you can watch on Amazon. Like I said, it's only like 75 minutes long. Um, and, uh, uh, I really treasure these kind of experiences that art and film, uh, in particular, uh, can give me to, see the world from a point of view that I wouldn't have otherwise had the opportunity to. I will say that Negan shirt thing I think is dumb. Um, <laughs> Why? Because Negan's on it. He says eeny, eeny, meeny, miny, mo. He then says catch a tiger by the toe, which is the, which is how many people know it. And what's more, how it is said on the show, on the show itself. And if, it, if there were, if there were a shirt that simply said eeny, the words, eeny, meeny, miny, mo, that was it. All right. That would mean something that would probably mean something to some Walking Dead fans. But like context is important. And okay. this is a Walking Dead shirt. Now, I actually think it's horrible to have that character on. That's the what shirt. I, that's where I'm coming from as well, yeah. though, because um, I don't think it's done because of that reason. Like, why would you even want to walk around uh, with well, this monster on your it shirt? It speaks to the idiocy of the Walking Dead to me and just the way that it is perceived. Like, for example, there was. Uh, shortly, I believe after the Super Bowl, there was an ad where it showed like a football just like sitting on a on a football field, and it's a close up. And then you see the bat with the barbed wire. You see it come down and smash Lucille. it. Lucille, Lucille, thank you. Give it the respect it deserves. Sorry, <laughs> old Betsy. It has a name. <laughs> um, you see it come down and smash the football, and it says, "You know, football is over. Walking Dead coming soon." And I remember just being like. You realize that not unlike this football, uh, a char- a beloved character's head was de- two, of them. two of them were destroyed by this thing. Do you give a shit? Right. Or is it, or is the walking dead, as I've often been saying, is it so pulpy and two dimensional at best that you don't even really, it doesn't matter. You don't have an actual investment with, uh, in these characters. You just like whatever the biggest development is at this particular moment. But you know, like the difference is you speak of pulp, like there is 
maybe even no show in the 21st century as pulpy as breaking bad, but breaking sure. bad still took its character's deaths seriously. Yeah. I'm trying to think. So yeah, they did. I don't, I don't think they ever of any of the characters, any of the innocents that died in breaking bad. I'm pretty sure none of those were really turned into officially turned into any kind of meme like Gale right. yeah. or spoilers or, you know, any, yeah. any or of the these kid with the tarantula, <laughs> right? Or yeah. Kristen Ritter's character. Exactly. Spoiler, spoiler. <laughs> yeah. I feel like, um, or, you know, the big character gets uh, shot in the head at the, towards the end of the, of the series. Yeah. Um, you know, I do think that there's, I think it's the creators of the walking dead might not, you know, they might not be the ones signing off on this, but I do think it's ridiculous, but nonetheless, Negan is on that shirt. Bad taste though. I find it to be. Okay. So don't um, buy this shirt anyway is definitely what you're saying on so many levels. Yes. Uh, but because he is on that shirt, I feel like, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a dog whistle thing. I think it is just simply, I think context does matter. If the, if it were just the words, I could see it, but I definitely don't think it's a dog whistle thing because I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like no one under the age of 50, like remembers that that line used to be like that. Yeah. This is the first Um, time hearing of it. And of course that's terrible, but I could also, yeah. yeah. Um, but, um, I'm still willing to, it doesn't hurt me either way. So I'm going to give the benefit of the doubt to the people who are offended by it. I would, it's, I, I, I do, um, as a function of like the various marriage books that I've read, you know, the idea of communication. And if one person misinterprets something now, you don't want, now there's always the possibility that someone is always misinterpreting things and they have power over this other person. But like, if I've said something that offends Jen, rather than spend all my time saying, well, that's not what I meant. I should actually hear her out so that, so that we, so that we can understand each other better. But I think honestly, so that so I, I do agree with you, but there is an assumption there that the person that is offended will try to see things from this perspective. And so the idea that it's Negan on the shirt, it is a walking it's a direct walking dead reference. I feel like if you are offended by that shirt, I feel like I'm not saying you shouldn't be, but I'd say think again think, think a second time. Okay. Or like allow allow context to come in and then be like, oh, okay, yeah, all right, that's not what it means. But I guess what I'm saying is that it doesn't, like, why do I even want to have this battle? It doesn't mean anything to me. It's all, when, when someone is offended to the point where, where, where they start to try and, say, hinder other people's free speech mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. Um, that's where I step in. And maybe it means something to me because I'm going to school right now. And there was a conversation in one of my classes two weeks ago that got me so angry. I didn't Uh-oh. actually say anything. Oh, um, that was probably wise. Yes. Uh, <laughs> undoubtedly. Um, but, <clears throat> and so, uh, and, and it, it wasn't a, fr- it wasn't a free speech issue. It was just more, uh, this kind of thing bothers me because, you know, eventually the offense could hit me. And I'm not talking in terms of slippery slope. I'm not, I'm talking about, you know, it's like, Oh, well this doesn't affect me in any way. So I, sorry to get a little bit, uh, ham fisted. So I won't speak up, Uh but it is a, it's a, it, it's, 
to me, a larger issue in microcosm and the larger issue, it always has the potential of getting out of hand. Yeah, but I just, I guess I don't see this as being anywhere near that. I don't, um... What are you reacting to? Uh, I heard my wife laughing loudly outside, and it oh. was uh, one of my favorite types of her laughs. I'm sorry, go on. Um, I just don't see this as being uh, a threat because, yeah, if something uh, is offensive to my values, mm-hmm. um, then I'm going to speak up whether it affects me or not, like sure. the, the travel ban. Um but this doesn't offend my my values. Now you said you don't see it as a threat. If we are calling, if we're saying like, I, I also, I don't see them. I don't see being offended as as much of a threat. But I also don't see that shirt as much of a threat. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think that's that's fine. So um, yeah. So I I think you and I actually agree. We have no problem with being people being offended by the shirt. Yeah. Hmm. Yes, as long I, I just don't think it should end there. Like you can be offended, and then you can just sit and being and just be offended by this thing, or you can take the next step, realize what the shirt actually is, instead of what it could be, but obviously isn't. Obviously isn't. Okay. You know, I don't. I don't like the idea of of what do you, I don't even know the term. Uh, something culture like. Uh, no, not enraged culture. Outrage culture. Outrage culture. Okay. Thank you. Um, like I don't necessarily believe in that, um, but I think that individually we all have things. We hear things either directed at us specifically or directed at a group, uh, and we have this choice of: Did this person actually mean this? There's a lot of different ways. There, there can often be different ways to take it. Did this person mean this? We do have the choice now. They maybe they did. Or maybe they didn't, but there is a genuine thoughtlessness there that does need to be called out. But I would say that also... So you don't think there's a genuine thoughtlessness to this shirt? Not at this level. I think there's the thoughtlessness, the, oh, there's the yeah, insensitivity right. of the character. But I don't think that there's a racial thoughtlessness to this. Because it is... Well, I really wish we had at least two black people here on this show. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so I, uh, to, because I feel like you and I are going to go in circles and like, there's uh, a point where neither one of us has anything more to yeah. add to the conversation. So maybe if you're a listener of color, or I guess in this case, specifically a black listener, because sure. this is that, that word has a very specific meaning. Um, Please comment. Yeah. We, uh, we very much welcome your point of view, despite the fact that it's just us talking like blowhards every week. I, yeah. For uh, 10 years, David. Um, as of this episode? That's no, right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. This is episode 520. That's yeah. well. Now this is, this is a, we're not there yet. Oh, right. Sorry. But a, coming yeah. up on 10 years, this episode coming up yeah. 10 years of, just this horse shit. Yeah. Okay. Uh, along these lines, I will say that my next film is uh, something of a gap filler for me, and it does sort of fit in with what we're talking about. I saw Adam's Rib for the first time. Have you I've seen it? I've never seen it, no. George Cukor. Uh, I believe this is the first Tracy and Hepburn film that I've seen. They acted with each other quite a bit, George Cukor often directing them. Uh, and this film is, you know, the battle of the sexes, and it's this 
married couple and they're on opposite sides of a court case. And the, the nature of the court case is one that has to do with sexual politics and, and the larger role that it plays in the culture. And so these two, <clears throat> at first, it's so interesting. At first, these two are doing a very good job of doing their job and then loving each other. You know, just being husband and wife and like leaving the the court case at the door. But as will always happen, you know, it is their jobs. Yeah, it's their job. But at the same time, it's also a larger philosophical argument and a larger philosophical debate that's happening. Uh, And that will begin to seep into things. And before you know it, it's starting to affect their marriage. It's still funny. And the two of them have an undeniable chemistry, which makes sense. Um, But uh, but it is also I think it it can make any married person uh, ask questions like, how much do I stick to my principles? Not merely the principles like of a specific argument between husband and wife, but uh, the argument, uh, but the principles, uh, larger principles, political principles. You know, there are times when I've uh, been spouting off about some political thing, and I don't think I necessarily hurt Jen's feelings, but we, we disagreed, and after a while... And it, and it did sort of bother me that we disagreed, but, uh, but I realized like, what am I, you know, the principles are important. Don't get me wrong. I didn't change what I thought, but I realized like my love for my wife is more important than this. And so Adam's rib has, has to do with that. And, and, and the court case itself is very interesting. And one that is, I think very, it's very of the time. Um, and, uh, it's just a really, I don't love the movie, but, um, because I think that there are moments when, uh, where they just—I don't like to think in these terms—but there are there are one or two like more natural endings than the one they go with. Um, but uh, so I tried to think in terms of like, okay, well, they didn't go with that, so they they think this is the best. Kukor thought this was the best ending, so I'll just trust him. But I would say the film maybe could have been shortened in general. Hmm. But but it's really good. All right. Um, I saw a movie that there was no way I was going to miss this uh, when it was in the theater. So I went and saw John Wick Chapter 2. Of course. Because um, John Wick is... Uh, the the first one is um, the best action movie of the 21st century. Yes, take that, The Raid fans. <laughs> and I, didn't, I do love The Raid. The Raid is the second best action movie of the 21st century. Um, but I think John Wick 2 is great but not as good as John Wick, mm-hmm. much like the raid is great, but not as good as John Wick. The, John Wick two has more in common with the raid than it does with the first one mm-hmm. in, in some ways. Uh, because I think the thing that I respond to so much about John Wick is it's, is the character's purity of motivation. Um, that he's, uh, grieving his wife. And then, um, all he has in his life is this dog that his wife left him to take her place and to be a, and to keep him company after she died. And this little shit played by, uh, Theon Greyjoy, uh, Alfie Allen, um, uh, steals his car and kills the dog. And so, you know, you know, like there's no, you don't have to, uh, you don't have to suspend any disbelief or, or, or jump uh, over any hurdles to understand why John, what is motivating John wick yeah. for the rest of the movie. This movie is a little bit more convoluted in how it gets him, you know, back out of retirement uh, again. Um, uh, and in a way that's fun because it gets to, a, it lets the, 
the 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 filmmakers expand this weird alternate world that we that that they set up in the first one where being an assassin is a a trade that has its own like uh, rules and customs and even its own currency and um where uh uh, incredibly violent things happen all the time. The cops turn a blind eye because the community has like cleaners who clean up the mess themselves. And also miraculously, but not miraculously because it's just what this world is. No civilians ever get hit by stray bullets ever. Oh yeah. You know, I mean, John wick has, uh, the scene. It's about, it's like six and a half minutes long in a, nightclub i guess but it's also a spa in the basement in a nightclub upstairs mm-hmm. um that is if john wick's the best action movie of the 21st century this is the best action sequence of the 21st century um and it's uh if you if this were taking place in our world it would be ridiculous yeah. that no one he's shooting yeah. he shoots 30 something people and no civilians uh get get hurt at all now uh-huh. For the sake of argument, why are we okay with this and not Bad Boys Two? Because John Wick is essentially a science fiction film okay. taking place in another world where it's like it, that's what I said. You don't have to suspend disbelief because it's saying it, it's it's showing you these are the rules. This is the world as okay. it exists. Um, anyway, I'm talking more about John Wick than John Wick Two. Uh, John Wick Two has, um, I think, bigger and in some ways more uh, inventive uh action sequences but it does feel even more so than the first one it feels like a video game where you're just going level to level that's not really a complaint i had a blast watching it it's a lot of fun um and it is uh incredibly violent and that's the thing that's to to go back to the point i was just making you and i have talked since over the 10 since like the first couple of episodes of this show about violence and increasingly having done this show 10 years now, um, you and I are are increasingly, increasingly sensitive to depictions of violence. And I think, cause I saw this movie with, uh, uh, a couple of friends actually, including, um, friend of the show, Patrick Starr, who was on many years ago. Oh yeah. Um, didn't he move away? Uh, yeah, that was, we actually, yeah. Um, he, we hung out. Um, anyway, uh, and he, he was more bothered, but he was bothered by how incredibly violent the movie is. And I feel like, I guess as someone who has become more and more sensitive, the fact that John wick as a series puts up this wall between their reality and this reality, it's almost like, it's like a relief for me. Like, Oh, I get to just, enjoy mindless violence again because I know there's no consequences, not even obviously there's no consequences in the real world, but even within this world, there's no real consequences. Everyone who gets shot and killed is someone who willingly entered a line of duty where that was the, that was the role. That was what's, uh, very possible to, to happen. Um, uh, and so it is, yeah, it's it's super super violent and it has um some uh inventive things like the first one had where it's like uh part of it's just like choreography and framing cuz you don't get that super uh uh disorienting action movie thing that uh was uh in vogue for a while. It's very clean mm-hmm. and 
presentational and you understand exactly what's happening. Uh, and that's part of the fun, but also part of the fun is just inventiveness. Like I've never seen that in an action movie before. So there's a part where he's killing dudes with a shotgun. Okay. He's got one left and he points a shotgun at him, clicks it. He's out of bullets. So he pins the guy to the ground with a shotgun unloads and reloads and then just shoots the guy in the head with, with, while he's into the ground. That does sound pretty rough. It is. That's like, that's like, uh, that old, uh, Mickey Spillane oh, yeah, yeah. thing, uh, where I think in the first page of, I think it's called one lonely night, but anyway, my camera's walking around and then it encounters a communist. So obviously the guy needs to die. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and the guy's harassing a, a, a woman on the street. So my camera's going to, going to go get him. Uh, then he discovers that he's part of this uh, communist ring. And so he said, and again, those are all written from the first person. And so, you know, I put a gun in his face. I gave him a second to realize he was about to die. And then I pulled the trigger. <laughs> it's like, Oh, that's really malicious. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah, that's, but John Wick isn't particularly malicious. This is just, the most efficient way to yeah. kill as many people yeah. <laughs> in as short a time as possible. I've gone in too long, but definitely, definitely see John wick. And if you like it, um, definitely see John wick too. Um, didn't expect to like common as much as I did, who okay. plays a, a, a rival assassin and a rival in the sense as part of the fun of this world is they both have great respect for one another. Yeah. But, uh, their, you know, line of duty just puts them yeah. in combat with one another uh, and they have a fantastic uh, scene in in uh, in Rome. Uh, anyway, check out John Wick Chapter Two. We should do an episode about hitmen. Okay, there, I, there are enough movies at this point that I feel like we can uh, we can do that. Yeah. Um, so okay, next up for me was a rewatch, though it's been a long time since I'd seen it, um, and it is Ilya Kazan's A Face in the Crowd, which is the topic of this week's More Than One Lesson, which my, my friend Jeff and I talk about that, and then an hour of politics. You're welcome. Um, Fantastic. But, uh, but yeah, have you ever seen A Face in the Crowd? I know I have not. It really is marvelous, and it is uh, histrionic in a way that is... I'm sure I'm not the only one to make this comparison. It's very uh, network-esque uh, in that there's a satirical element to it, and everything is just very over-the-top, including the, the main character's meteoric rise to fame. Uh, it, it's a film about populism. It's a film about the power of television, the power of art, uh, and just the, the... the I won't even say the American public, but just the, the human nature's desire to invest so much of themselves in into other people and specifically public figures, whether they be celebrities or politicians or whatever. And then the the unfortunate moments of the person who realizes that and exploits it. Uh, it's it's a really solid movie with a uh, an astonishing performance by Andy Griffith. Uh, it's unfortunate that we all know who Andy Griffith is and the, and thus we're going to see this performance in comparison to these other performances. Cause I think it's good on its own, but mm-hmm. it is really amazing that he has this type of intensity and this type of ugliness inside him, uh, or that he was able to, to, to tap into something. And so, uh, it's a movie that's very good. Uh, check out that more than one lesson episode, but I will totally understand if you don't, cause it <laughs> is a lot of politics. All right. Uh, speaking as we were earlier about overindulgence, uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, I say that as we're entering <laughs> as we're more than 90 minutes into this episode. Uh, um, 
another another blind spot I filled in. Now I'm a big fan of the Man with No Name trilogy. Yeah. But outside of that, the only other Sergio Leone film I'd seen is Once Upon a Time in America, okay. which means I'd never seen Once Upon a Time in the West. Ah. So I watched Once Upon a Time in the West. I understand its reputation. Mm-hmm. And it is uh, often astounding. There are things in Once Upon a Time in the West that are better than anything in the Man With No Name trilogy. Mm -hmm. That said, by the time that I hit the two-hour mark and realized there's still 45 minutes left of the movie, I was like, does this need all this? Yeah, it doesn't. Uh, It just just goes on too long, and I think the... um, And this is just, I think, a sign of the the times it's i think it's an it's an uglier movie than it probably even played at the time mm-hmm. uh in terms of just the uh the characters even like the the good guys like um who is uh i guess like charles bronson and jason robards are like good guys but they're yeah. still <clears throat> mean to um claudia carnelli's character yeah uh and and really take advantage of her and um yeah, I mean, she's like, there's a way to interpret the movie in which she's the lead, but she's mm-hmm. given so little agency uh, yeah. as the lead um, uh, that it, uh, it, it, I found myself very turned off by it by the end, but there is, there are sequences in there. The that, opening uh, sequence is amazing. The f- not only the he was, but also the one after that, which is the same. It reminded me so much of, and I'm sure this is not a coincidence. It reminded me so much of *Inglorious Bastards*. Oh yeah, uh, because there's a there's a rhythm to *Inglorious Bastards*, which is, I believe, still my favorite Quentin Tarantino movie, uh, in which every scene is a slow burn that ends in violence, <laughs> almost. almost. I mean, I, I'm obviously exaggerating, but uh, um, but I mean. Com- Compared to Once Upon a Time in the West, these move scenes move along at a yeah. Mamet-esque clip. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, um, because the first the first 13 minutes of Once Upon a Time in the West have almost no dialogue. It's just dominated by the sound of that creaky yeah. uh, windmill, and it's so great. And then the second, I think it's right after that, is the sequence that leads up to the massacre at the McBain farm uh, yeah. by Henry Fonda and his men, which is the same thing. You've got this family and you've got the, uh, the thing that keeps happening where you're hearing the, uh, like cicadas or whatever, mm-hmm. and they keep stopping and it goes completely silent and everyone stops and looks around and then the cicadas come back up yeah. and it's building this tension. And then it ends in, uh, uh, really horrific, um, uh, bloodshed. Um, and, uh, uh it's, it's really impressive. I'm glad I, I'm glad I saw it. I certainly understand its reputation, but uh, I think there's something about Sergio Leone that the longer his movies get, the quick, I, I've always said that fistful of dollars is my favorite Sergio Leone movie yeah. because it's uh, so economical. Um, but there's something, I mean, something that's in the man with no name and is in this, uh, that, um, I don't know that he necessarily gets the credit he deserves for, which is the, um, the pace of the violence itself, which is, I think now in 2017, we've become accustomed to violence happening very quickly and suddenly in movies. Um, but if you look at, uh, I mean, what year is Manchurian candidate? 62, 62. Okay. So that's six years before once upon a time in the West, right? Which Mm -hmm. is 68 or is it 69? Somewhere around there. Yeah. Um, the action, the big fight action sequence in Manchurian Candidate, as much as I love that movie, is 
it looks like it's in slow motion. You know, yeah. the, the karate sequence, yeah. um, uh, it's almost funny to watch now. And yet the, the, the violence and the action and the shootouts in once upon a time in the, once upon a time in the West happen at the pace at which, uh, it doesn't feel out of place, uh, in 2017. I think that's, yeah. uh, Sergio Leone was clearly, uh, very far ahead of his time, uh, in, in that, um, yeah, terrific movie. I'll still take Fistful of Dollars any day. Yeah. Um, okay, so my last film is is another one that I... Uh, oh, that's right. And then I have one more. Okay. Another one that I watched um, in my film history class. It was yesterday. And uh, because I've seen it so many times, I thought, you know what? I'm just going to watch the first couple minutes, and then I'm going to duck out, and I'm going to... Because I have work to do, so I'm going to... I'm just going to do that. But within the first five notes of Bernard Herman's wonderful score for psycho. Uh-huh. I thought, well, shit, I'm just going to watch this whole thing. Um, <laughs> it's funny you say that. Cause going back to like my rewatch of La La Land was kind of accidental too, where I was really? like, I want to watch the, another day, uh, another day of sun sequence. Yeah. Uh, and then I was like, fuck, I'm watching this whole movie. Ex- exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've seen psycho countless times. Uh, I could I can definitely recount almost scene for scene, you know, everything about it. But just that music is so damn propulsive that it just pulls you in. And then it starts with that, you know, hotel scene, which is a perfectly fine scene. But, mm-hmm. you know, if it started with that and then there were credits or the credits weren't as interesting, I don't think I would have stuck around. But just like, right. damn, this music is good. Um, and then just watching the whole time. And I will say this part of the fun because of where the TAs said we, we sit in the front, uh, the front left corner of this theater and all the TAs were gone by then. Uh, w- all the TAs were gone 20 minutes in. And then I'm like, I'm staying the whole time. So I look back at the kids. Oh, like you're like Amelie. Yeah. Uh, this is the first time I did it because this is one that has horror. This has a twist and I wanted to see what their reactions would be. And I got to say, during the shower sequence, there, there were people that were having very palpable reactions, but the one that got them was the Arbogast death, uh-huh. Martin Balsam's death, yeah. um, because it's just so, <coughs> excuse me, it's so quiet as he walks up these stairs, and then suddenly there's the music again, and that one, like, people let out audible screams, and I was just like, in 2017... Uh-huh. A bunch of, you know, potentially jaded 18 and 19 year olds who've seen modern movies and they've seen modern horror movies, but they scream when they watch Psycho. And so I was talking to them about it today and they just said they, they thought it was so engrossing and just absolutely loved it. And so, and, and I, myself, it is just an absolute masterpiece. Okay. Uh, I'll end with a movie that's not a masterpiece. It's also not terrible. It just simply is the movie I'd never seen. I don't know if this counts as filling in a blind spot because no one was ever, no one has ever said, I can't believe you haven't seen Steven Spielberg's empire of the sun. No one has oh, ever said that to me. I saw that one. Um, yes, that's true. It is. Uh, yeah. It's th- not necessarily minor Spielberg. It's very ambitious, but it's just uh, forgotten. Yeah. And it does seem, um, I, I try to put myself in the, in the mindset in, uh, at the time it was, it was new territory for him yeah. in a way. Uh, you know, telling this story that takes place entirely, um, in, uh, in China, um, uh, during world war two from the point of view of a, a British boy, uh, played by Christian Bale. Yeah. Um, 
who's not great in the movie, by the way, but uh, um, uh, that's neither here nor there. Uh, but yeah, I, I guess I um, it's I don't even know what to say about it. There's some real beauty to it. Yeah, some beautiful uh, sequences. Too much of it rests on Christian Bale. Yeah, you know, who's just. Um, you could just tell he's like his, his only note that he's playing is just like run around and be excited a lot. Yeah. You know? Um, uh, and it's, it's like the character is more interesting at the beginning when he's a little shit because he's this yeah. rich kid who is, I don't know when was the last time you saw it, but like it's been a few years. Um, he's never known anything outside of his, uh, the, the, this very, uh, cloistered, you know, wealthy British expatriate community in, in Shanghai. Mm. Um, and he, you know, treats his, the Chinese servants, uh, like, uh, like servants, uh, pretty much, even though they're his elders. Um, and then once things start to go wrong, he keeps telling people he's British as a way of, he just assumes that's going to save him. Yeah. Uh, and I found that the most interesting. And then there is, uh, uh, I don't know if you remember once they get taken away to the camp, there's a hard cut to four years later. Yeah. And, uh, I guess I felt like he was, he was less interesting from that point on. Um, and John Malkovich was the best part of the movie. Yeah. I think at so. that point, um, <clears throat> even though I kind of hate his character, but you, you're kind of supposed to, he's, I feel like the, um, the, the main character's journey is realizing that, the father figure he's chosen in his father's absence isn't a father figure to yeah. him, you know, because John Malkovich keeps, you know, using Christian Bale's uh, resourcefulness and company when it's convenient to him and multiple times gives him up when it's not. Yeah. Uh, and it's not until the very end when, um, Malkovich and his new crew, uh, are like, come on, get in the car with us. And he doesn't go. It's the first time in the movie that he hasn't done what John Malkovich told him to do. Right. Um, that's the journey. And because Christian Bale is not, like I said, not great in the movie. Um, I feel okay saying that now because he's grown up and he's become Christian Bale. Yeah. If this, if it was a kid who never did anything else, I probably wouldn't yeah. be so hard on him. Um, but it does. It, the reason that story works is because John Malkovich is so good in, in the movie. Yeah. Um, cinematography is great too. Yeah, it's it's definitely um it's I remember it being very visually beautiful and there are there are moments that are very engaging but I remember feeling it or thinking that it felt kind of hollow. Um that definitely definitely style over substance, which is not a crime except I think Spielberg is really going for substance here. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Um but the style stuff, like the part when he first gets to the camp, which is next to a Japanese airfield yeah. and this kid's obsessed with planes yeah. and he's walking up to the, uh, the plane and you've got, it reminded me of, um, the shot in Titanic where you've got the flares going yeah. off, right? Yeah. Which signal danger, but because we're seeing it from the lover's point of view, they look like fireworks and, the, and it's yeah. really beautiful here you've got the same thing. He's walking up to this plane that's being worked on. You've got the sparks coming off the plane. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, this, this is a kid who's just been put into a, you know, a prisoner, uh, like a, a prison camp. 
Um, but he's in, he's awestruck in it. Again, it looks yeah. like fireworks, uh, to him. That's, that's a, there's a lot of great moments, uh, like that. Um, and some really large scale stuff when you finally get the, um, when, you know, the, the, uh, the Americans freeing the camp and you've got right. that air battle and stuff <laughs> exploding and stuff. There's some really cool Spielbergian type yeah. stuff there, but yeah, maybe hollow might be the right word uh joe pantoliano's in it i didn't know that that's right yes he's one of john malkovich's no. uh first crew and ben stiller i forgot about he's, ben stiller yeah he's also in a, one of the americans under in john malkovich's crew in the in the prison camp he's been around a lot longer than uh <laughs> it feels yeah. like um okay uh tv do you have any uh no okay so uh I watched, oh, you know what? I will say one thing about okay. TV, just to recommend, uh, because she's a good friend of the show. Uh, Aaron Gibson, uh, our friend Aaron Gibson, uh, her po- her podcast Throwing Shade is now a weekly TV show on oh, great. on uh, uh, TV Land. Um, it's been going for six or seven weeks, a couple months at this point. Uh, I'm I'm really enjoying it. Okay, awesome. So good check, yeah, check out Throwing Shade on TV Land. Um, I think I mentioned last week that, uh, or two weeks ago, pardon me, that I, I had been watching the people versus OJ Simpson, yes. the, the mini series about the trial. Uh, I thought it was very good. Um, at times it's unfortunate watching the, the documentary first and then this, because it makes this seem a lot trashier and more tabloidy. <laughs> uh, but it does, it does allow us to, the format does allow us to go into things that the, that no documentary could, which is like, you know, the jury and dealing with, with that sort of thing and, and seeing the, the lawyers operate behind the scenes. And, uh, I thought it was very, I thought it was, it was very good. And, uh, definitely, um, Marsha Clark and Christopher Darden, like their characters are really interesting with Darden, especially because he's in between these two worlds. He's, you know, he's definitely part of the black community, but the black community is very much against what he is doing. Um, and it, uh, I don't know. There's, there's a lot of good there and I was very happy that I watched it. Um, in class, in my TV history class, we watched an episode of Miami vice. Um, yeah, which, uh, you know, coming off of the Rockford Files the year before, the the week before, it was very interesting. Um, and you just see how different Miami Vice is uh, uh, in tone, in its visuals. Uh, I remember um, you didn't watch the the first episode, though. I don't think it was the first episode. Did it have Phil Collins in the air tonight uh, in it? No, maybe it did. Because Phil Collins fa- is in it. That's a famous it's, like musical cue from the first episode. Yeah. Which then, uh, I felt like the Americans on FX really uh, threw down the gauntlet by also including in the <laughs> air tonight in its very first episode. Like wow. it was like uh, challenging the, the the legacy, the uh, passing of the torch. <laughs> yeah, two completely different <laughs> yeah. shows, uh, making that same choice. Anyway, uh, it might be the, uh, we might have watched the first episode. Honestly, Bruce Willis is in it. He's the villain, um, and uh, so. Never Not Funny's Jimmy Pardo on his own show a long time ago was talking about rewatching Never Not Funny. Uh, sorry, rewatching Miami Vice, and um, and he mentioned this these this exchange between the like the the Sarge and and uh, the Tubbs character, um, and the fact that he remembered this line and the fact that I'm watching this and now you're mentioning Phil Collins like maybe this was the very first episode I'm not really sure, um, but the uh 
the the sergeant or the captain is saying like all right let's get on this guy i want to go th- let's go through his laundry and tubs and tubs says i bet it's dirty <laughs> and i'm sure you can imagine uh, jimmy's delivery of that um being marvelous and uh so stuff like that you know cheesy as hell but uh still engaging in its own way that's one that you know as as tends to happen the more it embraces its time just the less relatable it is you know um you and i often talk about how specificity can actually be universal but i think when it comes to like cultural signifiers i feel like specificity not always not always universal sounds like you watched season one episode seven okay that's the one with bruce willis all right is that it i believe that is it